All right, all right. Okay, if you don't mind, go ahead and go to or find your seats and then also your worship guide. All right, so in your worship guide, you will have uh, today's uh, scripture printed out for you. Go ahead and remain seated if you, or remain standing, if you don't mind, uh, for the authority of God's uh, word. And then at the end of the authority of scripture, you'll see some words in bold. Uh, we want to declare something back to the Lord in this moment. And so uh, this is 1 Peter 3. 8 through 12, and this is God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. For we all say together, for all flesh is like grass. Amen and amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So we are quickly getting through uh, the book of First Peter. If you notice the very first word that is in today's text is the word finally, meaning that uh, he is starting to make some kind of conclusionary statements to us. And so what are those things that he finally wants us to say? What are the things that he wants to leave us with? Well, to start it off this morning, I want to share with you, I want to take us down a path of, of, of just of where we have come from and where are we going? Because in the early days, the people of Redstone Church, we were quite dorky. Uh, we would name things, certain things that uh, just made, didn't make a whole lot of sense, like our name. Red Stone Church, right? That's kind of a, a unique name because we wanted to be a little bit provocative and we wanted people to say, so why do you do the things that you do so that we could explain and backfill all of those things? So for instance, now we had this thing called Big Table. Big table. Every Friday night, we would gather at somebody's house and we would throw a big party. We would have a big meal and we would just do the things that you do around a meal. We would laugh and we would talk and we would eat and we would share stories and we begin, our heart would be, uh, be pricked for what God was doing around us. And so big table became a thing. And people were like, big table, what is that? And we would be like, you would never believe. And so big table became like an ethos in and of itself. In community group, we had this thing called Danger Night. Yeah, that's the dumbest name in the world. However, uh, here we are eight years later and we still are using it because we can't find a better one. But what is Danger Night? Well, Danger Night was a night in which we split up. Guys went in one room and girls went to the other because we believed at our heart of our heart, especially for guys, we didn't like confession. We didn't like to share the things that were really happening in our life. And so that was a dangerous proposition to be able to open up and to share with others exactly what was going on in our life. And so it made us, it made it feel a little bit like there was a risk involved, right? And so we had to face our fears. We had to face the danger and just let it rip. 
That's what made Redstone, Redstone. So yeah, there were, there were dumb names, right? And there were, but there was a purpose behind it. We wanted truly to look at what a gospel community, what Christian community was, and we tried to give people some things that helped them make sense. And for us, the gospel, so that's for Redstone Church, is, is, is a name that explains the gospel. Big Table was just an, an amazing picture of community. And Danger Night was just this opportunity to to tell everyone that the good news was only good news because we first failed. And that's why we believed in the gospel. First Peter is doing something similar. He's trying to give us some, just some words or some phrases on what exactly is Christian community. Like what is Christian community? And so uh, this is what we're going to discuss this morning. So biblical community or Christian community is one that, uh, verse 8, it will show us that as a, a Christian community or biblical community is one that, that is sustained, right? So that's point number one. In verse 9, we're going to see how biblical community acts. And then verses 10 through 12, we're going to actually see the ultimate end or the purpose of exactly what Christian community or biblical community is. So let's just jump in, all right? So those are your three points. What sustains it? how it acts, and just the ultimate end. So here we go. So what sustains biblical community? Let's just go back to verse 8. Look at this. So finally, all of you have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Just look at that word, finally, all of you. And that's where we get like a tip or a hat or a wink from Peter that he's trying to do something bigger than just the individual person in and of themselves. So finally, I want you all to listen to one big something and that's why we're calling it community. So finally, all of you, this is how he starts. He uses the word finally because he is using some concluding thoughts. And I want you to actually go back into your scriptures to chapter 2, verse 11. This is actually when he started this argument. This is where he actually began some of these things. And so Peter is wrapping up at that argument. And what was that? Starting in verse 2, 11, all the way here into chapter 3, he wants our conduct to be different. And so all of you, we want your conduct. We want the way that you act to be a little bit different than or much different than what you began. And so finally, all of you, your conduct, this frame of reference needs to be different. And so what are the things that sustains biblical community? Well, you see that there's also some virtues. After the finally all of you, you actually see these, these five traits, these five characteristics, these five adjectives that actually explain or tell you what, what biblical community is. And so what are those five? Go ahead, class. What are they? Okay. A little louder. I'm, I'm getting, I'm 40-something, you know, and so I'm losing my... Ah, unity of mind, good. Sympathy, that's right, we're just, it's just a list. You can just read it out loud. It says, you know, there's no catch. Love, good. Somebody said tenderness. And then lastly, that's right, there we go. So these are the five traits that he looks at. All right, so that's what Peter is telling us. These are the five traits that make biblical community work. At Redstone Church, we've also done something similar. We said there are five characteristics that make Redstone Church, Redstone Church. 
Can any of you guess any of those things? Because these are the traits that we have said, this is what is important to us. Oh, someone says, burst the bubble of perception. That is also danger night or authenticity. Good. So you see that a a bubble is about to be burst. Uh, Passing the baton. This is our value, our virtue, in which we love the next generation and passing things on to the next generation. Fireworks, anybody? The special word that we all love, conviviality. Ah, right? Conviviality. We, were, we like to give people permission to celebrate. This is what we do. So what, what we did in the early days is come up with these values that made us us. And here is what, what uh, uh, Peter is doing. He's doing the same thing, except for he's not using words like bursting the bubble of perception, which is stupid, and, or conviviality. He's using very biblical rooted words to say, this is what I will think is the most important for you. This is what's important. These five traits, they're more than enough uh, to make us different in this life, right? Because these are the things that unify us. If you look at those five traits, this is truly what the commentaries call an, an alternative society something that looks very different from what is around us. Peter is is challenging us to a new kingdom. He's telling us that we need to to, to act very differently than we do. Remember that first imperative to be holy as I am holy. That word be holy is to be set apart, to look different, to actually live according to a different standard because it's a different kingdom. He's continuing to use our conduct, the way that we behave or the way that we react as the great differentiation between us and the world around us. So notice how uh, these five are very applicable today. Think about how you and I would interact with these types of things. Because the way that we react is not through the, 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 the filter or the lens of a biblical community. In fact, how we respond is actually more the way that I feel or as an individual. And so what we do is we triumph individuality over our commitment to community, don't we? Because we matter more than the community matters. What Peter is trying to do is to say, finally, all of you, you need to understand how or the, how the Christian community is supposed to act, to act. And so when individual needs are not met, what do we usually do? When things get a little bit uncomfortable, what do we do when our individual needs are not met? Well, we kind of go a different way or we seek out a different environment or another community in which we hope to actually give us exactly what we want or what we need. And so all of these qualities, whether it's unity or sympathy or love, this idea of tenderness or humilities, these are the things that run counterculture to everything. And it tells us, Peter is telling us that the larger Christian community is what matters most. What happens to you and I is we treat relationships or we treat Christian community a little bit like how we watch Netflix, 
right? Is because when we start and we dabble in a show or we dabble in a, a, a series or something, we watch it and we want it to entertain us, right? And what happens when we get a little bit bored of that thing? We just go to the next one. Or we binge watch it and we just watch everything. We consume it all and then we just move on assuming that that is what is supposed to happen. Is that we as individuals, we are to be entertained or we are the ones that are to be fulfilled. What Peter is doing is actually moving that mirror not on you but back toward the Christian community and saying the way that we interact with the community at large should look more like humility or unity, or sympathy, rather than anything else. Peter is actually stepping on every Western toe right now. Because it's not you, or yourself, or I. It's just this value of what community could be. When we woke up this morning, all right, why did you come to church? You don't have to answer that. But most of us, whether me too, right? Most of us woke up and said, well, I hope that I get something out of it, right? So I hope that I get something out of it. Peter is pressing in on what Christian community could be and why you would wake up and participate in something like this. And it actually has to do something that would actually encircle the entire room or the entire organization that we are participating in something much bigger than we are. And so finally, all of you, and then these five traits, but, um, whoops, sorry about that. But then I also want to note it, I want you to see something. There's this, this word called chiasm, right? You, you may know that word, you may not. It's a literary word, right? And so it's very similar to parallelism and those kinds of things. And so you remember in poetry, you have an AABB structure that would be more parallelism uh, or ABAB, those kinds of things. Well, a chiasm is very different because a chiasm has something at its middle or something, the apex right in the middle that's supposed to draw your attention to it. Well, most commentaries believe that that's what he is doing, meaning you have a list of five, but what Peter really wants us to do, right, is to focus in on the middle because this is how the chiasm looks. So, so if you look at the A structure, like unity of mind and a humble mind. So you see one and five, right? Those, those two have some parallels, right? In the same way that sympathy and a tender heart are very similar to one another so that it will draw all of our attention toward that middle or that apex of the exact structure and what is that? The thing that holds it all together or the thing that does the best at summarizing everything is brotherly love. Brotherly and sisterly or familial love. This is where uh, Peter is trying to take us. He's trying to push us toward this idea that we are now more family than strangers. We're more of a family reunion than a church. And that what God is doing is he is creating this brand new, uh, this family, or this family for us. Because he's used words like a new birth, being born again. He's told us that everything is generated from the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that we have become his spiritual children. This is what he is doing for us. So what he's doing is he is elevating the idea of the usness of Christian community rather than what I can only do for myself. 
The one thing that COVID did for us is it made us more insular. It made us more privatized. It made us more isolated. It also made us more critical and preferential. I like it this way. I don't like it that way. What this chiasm is telling us is when we approach this thing called Christian community or biblical community, it's got to look so very different from your natural inclinations. In fact, Peter will say that this is a supernatural endeavor something that you cannot do in and of yourself. And so this idea of this this family love, this family reunion, the thing that we are to be about is more about what we are unified by rather than what what we're different or what makes us different. Are there singles in here? Yes. Are there married people in here? Yes. Are there people who are employed in here or unemployed in here? Are there people that have graduated high school? Are there people who haven't graduated from high school? Are there people that are professionals or people that are artisans? The thing is, there's more, the things that separate us or make us different is far more than things that collect of us. So the, what is the one reason we are all gathered? It can't be to find people that are just like us. It's got to gravitate toward this understanding of brotherly love. That is what motivates us. Do you know what love is? What is the actual good definition of, of what love is? 1 John 1.9 tells us exactly what love is. For this is how you know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us so that we could do the same. 1 John 1.19. So the reason or what Peter is calling us up to, this conduct, this new reality is that we are to constantly be laying down our lives for others because that's what families do. Have you ever seen a mom, you know, nurse a child in in the evening or in the middle of the night? Or have you seen a father, you know, be tender toward a sick little kid, right, with a fever? Or have you seen like some, uh, some teenager broken down on the side of the road, right? And so the father has to leave work in order to go rescue it. This is, this, this is, these are family terms. These are sacrificial terms. It's things that we do without even thinking about it. Why? Because we're family. So why did you wake up this morning and participate in something like this? What Peter is begging us to at least consider is this idea that it's a family and family first. So brotherly love, familial love. Love in our society gets a little wonky though, right? Because what is love, what is it usually attached to? Our feelings, right? So what happens when you meet that girl or meet that boy that you fall in love with that person, right? But when things get a little edgy or whatever, then you can fall out of love with someone else because love is attached to your feelings or how you are engaged. The biblical word for for, uh, love is very different. It's the word hesed, which is a word for covenantal love. Did you know that the word love in the scriptures have very little to do with present tense love and more future tense love? The way that we've seen it or heard it before is that it has, uh, it's not as much about me loving you today. It's about me loving you 
for all the future todays. So tomorrow I'll be there and the next day I'll be there. And that's what Jesus does. That's what God does for us. No matter where we are in our journey, he is still pursuing us like the prodigal son's father running toward us when we don't believe it. So this this, this brotherly love or this Philadelphia type love is not rooted in personal preference. This brotherly love or this Philadelphia type love is not rooted in even affections. Instead, the foundation is long suffering. I will be there for every single tomorrow. This is what Peter is calling us to. He's calling us to that. So here's a question for you. Is there someone inside our church, your church, that you've given up on? Is there someone that you have stopped sharing or giving brotherly or sisterly love toward? So with a humble mind and a tender heart, we would ask you to consider like who is a person that you need to not let the sun go down today to engage them and re- or re-engage them. That's what Peter is asking us to do. And so point number one, right? Point number one, what is, what sustains biblical community? Number two, so how does it act, right? Verse nine, you actually see some actions you actually see some things in which it's supposed to be and, and, and how it's supposed to, to like flesh itself out, right? And so the, what you see in verse 9 is you see this idea, idea of do not repay evil for evil. So how does it flesh itself out, right? It, just, it's, it's, it, it, it doesn't, like when something bad happens to you, right, you don't reciprocate in return. So when my mother married my father, uh, she was as pure as um, the driven snow or whatever. She was a tiny five foot nothing, blonde hair, beautiful. I mean, she just, I mean, she naive, whatever you want to call it. She was just, she was wonderful and perfect and everything. My mother on her, uh, uh, on her wedding day, she knew three curse words in the English language. She only knew three, right? And so there was a lot of other options, right? But she only knew three of them. My father would uh, commute an hour. He, he, would go into, he would go to Atlanta uh, every day for work, and he would come back, and he'd come back, and he'd be pretty tired, tired and grumpy. So this is what the evenings, how it would unfold. He would find himself in the Lazy Boy or the recliner lounge or whatever. And do you remember the old newspapers? Have you ever seen one of these things, right? I know that it's a little bit of an old relic, right? But there's these things called, called newspapers. And my father would loungy board himself and like open up the paper. So if you haven't seen one of these things, they're huge, right? They're big, right? And you can actually hide behind them. My father wasn't reading the newspaper. He was hiding from reality. So he wants to read the newspaper. My mother wants to talk, right? And he wasn't having anything to it. So my mother would go and she would pop the newspaper down and it would kind of lay on top of him. And my father would repop it up to create the barrier back. My mother got so mad at my father. She glued all three of these curse words together, right? You can, you can use your imagination, glued them all together and says, take that Tracy Teal and would just, and just walked out. She didn't know what to do with him. That's how, you know, that's how we naturally act. 
act, right? Is to repay evil for evil. When, when people like insult us, we want to insult them back. When you hurt me, guess what? I want to hurt you back. And so here's some history. Discomfort has set in, right? Some pain has engaged the people, this new church or this, this, and this, this young church in the, in the uh, first century. And discomfort has set in and the real impact that you are a, a Jesus follower and there's consequences to that. It's really, it's coming close. And so people are starting to feel uncomfortable. Some people say that verse 9 is the reason that Peter wrote this epistle. Like this is the main idea. This was the reason because insults had started to creep in. There's this thing called reviling that was happening toward the first century church and was starting to feel very uncomfortable. And so what Peter is trying to tell you is how do you deal with a community, right? Or a society that really cannot stand you. So when this this, this discomfort sets in, starting in, chapter 2, verse 11, and coming all the way to this final dialogue, he continues to say this phrase, do good. He's actually used this exact phrase four different times for you and your conduct to do good. What happens when insults come your way? What happens when something, this discomfort comes is that you, you do not repay evil for evil. That's what you don't do. And so here we have this idea of how we are to act. We simply don't repay evil for evil. What's our first response when we're hurt, right? What's the first, your first response when you get hurt? Do you lash out, whatever? Like these, these are the types of things. Because that's how we act pretty naturally, isn't it, right? When we get hurt, we get wounded, we act wounded. We act hurt and we try to retaliate. So verse nine has everything to do to do with retaliation. You have been paid evil. So what do you repay back? Our natural inclination is to repay what's been paid to us because that's what the Greco-Roman society did. The Greco-Roman society is full of honor and shame. And when someone spoke ill of you, you're supposed to take up for yourself and speak right back and dish it right back out to us. That's what we do. When we get hurt, we pay back in full. I've had a great, uh, we, Nicole and I have had a great uh, run here with uh, premarital counseling. Some of you, we have actually done premarital counseling for, and it's a, just a joy of ours. But one of the major sessions is conflict resolution. Like, what do we do when we are in conflict? Peter tells us, right, this is how you are to, to act. But Peter tells us something so very different from what our natural inclinations are. He actually tells us to do not repay for evil for evil. Do not repay insult for insult. So think about the last time you, you fought with somebody. It doesn't have to be your spouse. It could be a, a, uh, a coworker. What do you do? All right. What's the first thing that you do when someone wounds you? There's the classic, um, like, um, someone who gives you the silent treatment, right? So is there any silent treatment type people right here? When somebody wounds you, you just do this. Right, you just, you just you're this, that's the silent treatment person, right? That's, that is repaying evil for evil. You hurt me, so I'm gonna hurt you with my silence. So you just do this. You're not even worth a face. I'm gonna give you, all right? So that's, that's what you do, that's the silent. 
right? There's the stormer, right? So the silent treatment, but there's also the stormer, right? The Marines in here, who's like, when there's a, when there's a fight, we face the fight, we go straight toward the fight, right? So like, when you get hurt, you're like, what? Did you say something? I didn't hear you real good, right? And so you just storm back or you push back on somebody, right? So there's, there's the silent treatment and there's also the stormer, right? But then there's just this idea that uh, there's the smear tactic, right? I don't have any defenses. I don't really know what to say. So I'll just talk badly about you, right? And so you just hurl insults or hear, uh, hurl um, uh, some type of uh, a, a slander back toward that person. That's repaying evil for evil, but that's not what Peter tells us. He actually tells us a new conduct. Do not repay evil for evil. Get rid of your silent treatment or your storm tactic or your slander. Get rid of all those things and welcome to the supernatural business of the thing that only Jesus can do through you to not repay that thing that is in deserve. And that's what Jesus does. Remember back in 221, it tells us for you, this is what you have been called to follow the example of Jesus, to walk in his steps. And what did he do? What did he do? Did he repay evil for evil? Did he hurl insult for insult? No. Listen to Luke uh, chapter six. He says, but to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. This is almost verbatim to what we hear in First Peter. Sounds a lot like our passage. It's for us not to repay evil for evil. Again, it just continues to get more supernatural, i.e. get more and more impossible. Not only do not repay evil for evil, but how does it act? Bless. Uh Uh-oh. It's enough to not hurl insult for insult, to do tit for tat, to, 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 to retaliate in any way. But now Peter takes it another step, not only to restrain yourself, but actually to go the extra mile and to actually to bless others, to give a cup of cold water, you would hear Jesus say, to go the extra mile, you would hear Jesus say, to love your enemies, you would hear him say, or to bless uh, those who have cursed you. Peter is actually telling us to bless others, to give to others, to offer grace to others. This is what he's asking us to do without merit and against conventional wisdom to actually go another step, not just withhold or full of restraint, but actually to step toward them and to do good to them, to bless them fully and completely. Do not repay evil for evil, Peter says, but to bless them. And then he uses this little phrase, oh, bless them. So let me just tell you exactly what blessing could look like. How could you bless other people? We'll just use the acronym BLESS. You, how do you do that? You simply begin with prayer, right? That's what you probably should do. You should listen, right? Rather than talk all the time. You could eat with them, serve them, share a story with them. Like these are just practical ways in which you can take a step toward somebody rather than away from this. And then he says, I don't know where that, um, anyway, there's a third, there's a third, um, uh, point in, in my sermon, not on the screen, right? For you, uh, do not repay evil for evil, right? To bless and then look at this little phrase, for which you have been called. 
That's why you've been put on the planet. That's how you can be counterintuitive, for which you have been called. Think about the three past illustrations for you to engage an emperor that's up to no good, an employer that's up to no good, even a husband who who doesn't have like the best thing and for you to engage them. Peter is now looking at the Christian community and he's, he's saying, for which you have been called are these two directions, to not repay evil for evil, but to bless those who have ill intent toward you. The society at large, they're starting to not like the Christian community. And we're starting to feel some tension. What do we do? We can go back to a passage like this and it tells us exactly what we are to do because that's what Jesus did for us. This idea of not repaying evil for evil, but instead blessing for this is what you've been called. This is what we see in Jesus's work. Because who was undeserving? We are. Who was the enemy or who was at enmity with God? We were. Who was us actually giving scorn to God himself? Who showed us great kindness? Jesus did. So the the audience in which did not deserve anything, who was actually at enmity at God, Jesus walks toward us while we were yet sinners. Not while we were yet cleaned up, but while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What the world needs is full example of gospel ministry, not to repay evil for evil, but to bless. And this is our calling, gospel ministry, gospel community in which the world has never seen. They've seen paying evil for evil. That's what they see and they're very comfortable with that. But this, this is a new kingdom. This is the upside down kingdom fully and completely. All right. So what motivates the Christian community? There's this poem, this beautiful poem that comes out of Psalm 34. Psalm 34 is is almost verbatim. So what is the result or what is the purpose of Christian community? Whoever desires to uh, to love life and to see good days, who wouldn't want that? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. That's our phrase. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So what is the end or what is the, what is what motivates us for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the ears and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So what is our motivation? Our motivation simply is that you have the creator God in heaven, who both sees you and he hears you. Think about that. That's the motivation you should have, right? Not whether you could get in, right, a good uh, insult or not for you to win a fight, but truly, Psalm 34 gives us this idea that God sees and God hears. Psalm 34 is this picture of, of David. And David is hiding in a cave. And David is hiding in a cave against King Saul. And King Saul is trying to kill David. You see, Samuel has anointed David as king over Israel, right? 
but Saul will not give up the throne. Instead, he's trying to kill David because he wants to stay on the throne. So Psalm 37 is this picture of David hiding in a cave, trying to hide from Saul, who's trying to, or to pursue him, and is trying to kill him. David finds himself in a cave among the Philistines. And so remember the kind of the, just the, the idea of what Peter, or First Peter is? We are a Christian community who are in exile with people chasing us because we've done something good. David is in exile, right? And someone is chasing him because he has done something good. Psalm 34 in the Old Testament is as much as a Christian ethic as Isaiah 53 forms our Christology. Why? Because we're sojourners and we're exiles in Psalm 34. And there's someone who's literally chasing us. But while uh, David was in this cave, guess who shows up? King Saul. And King Saul is in a dark cave and he's, um, he's doing uh, private things, right? And so King David could have easily killed King Saul. Remember the story? But instead, what's he do? He comes up behind him and he cuts not his throat, but he cuts off a corner of his robe. Saul exits the, the cave and David shouts to him and holds up his robe. Meaning, I could have killed you, but I didn't. You've been hurling insults at me. You're chasing me. You're trying to kill me. And I could have reviled against those who reviled. I have, could have killed the one who's trying to kill me. But instead, Saul says, is this you, David? You are more righteous than I. For you could have repaid, or you, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. So may the Lord reward you with good. First Peter, or Peter is trying to give us a picture of how we are to react in a society who's, who truly hates us simply for us, for who we are. And he's trying to give us an example of how we are to conduct ourselves. At the end of our poem, it says, the Lord hears us and sees us. He heard and he saw David in the cave. He heard and saw the first century Christians and he will see and he will hear us. So it's up to us, how will we conduct ourselves? Will we pursue a biblical understanding of what com community is? Or will we remain in ourselves and only give back to the world our best efforts? The world doesn't need our best efforts. They need supernatural love for one another. Amen? Amen. So let's pray. King Jesus, as we come, across, come to your table, as we come to a picture of community around us, we come to the Lord's table. We come as a community of believers. First Corinthians tells us that we can't come to the table if there's sin in our heart. We can't come to the table if we hate our brother or we hate our sister. For this is the Lord's table.
also known as a love feast where we love each other supernaturally and sacrificially. And so as we honor you this morning, help us to also reflect, Lord, are we sacrificial in our love for our brothers and our sisters? Are we willing to engage the world in a way that is full of blessing, not curses? I pray for our community this morning as we wrestle with the contents of this passage. Maybe we have repaid evil for evil and we've been corrected this morning. I pray that we are dangerously confessional this morning. Father, I pray for authenticity. I pray for this, this, this fusion of relationships that you are gonna draw us closer to one another in humility and confession almost as much as anything else. So help us to engage the table, Lord, the table of remembrance as we see one who truly lived all of his days, not to repay evil for evil, but to bless for this is which you have called. You have made us brothers and sisters. You have adopted us in Christ. And for that, we are grateful. And it's in your name we pray.